Hello and welcome to this week's edition of SBC This Week, a roundup of news and views from around the Southern Baptist Convention. SBC This Week is hosted by Amy Whitfield and Jonathan Howe. Hey Jonathan, how's it going this week? Going well. We got a big show this week. We got a big time interview. We did. That was uh, that, that was pretty exciting. Very, very good chat. On last week's episode, we mentioned the Prestonwood uh, escrowing of funds and that the executive committee had named an ad hoc committee to study that and that uh, the officers of the executive committee were going to as well. And we were able to get a hold of Stephen Rummage and talk to him earlier this week about that. So here's our interview. Amy was able to join us on the interview. First time ever, huh? For you? Yeah, that's that's really the big news yeah. is that I was actually able to be in the interview, which never happens. Yep. But and this is a little backwards than our, our normal episodes, yes. but because this is such it kind of continues to be a story that people are, are considering, uh, we we saw this as a, a a good thing to start with. Yes. So here is our interview with Stephen Rummage. This week on the show, we are glad to welcome Dr. Stephen Rummage. He is the pastor at Bell Shoals Baptist Church in Brandon, Florida. And, and I've also got Amy on the line with us during the interview, which is, is kind of new for us. But uh, thank you yeah. for coming on, Dr. Rummage. Well, I'm glad to be on the uh, broadcast with you today. All right. Well, we, uh, you know, big story last week coming out of the executive committee uh, meeting that you guys had here in Nashville. I was able to get over there for some of the meeting, but I, I know the, the big thing that everybody really was talking about was the decisions they made uh, about what's going on at Prestonwood with the escrowing of CP funds. Uh, so the, the SPC bylaws state two important functions for the executive committee regarding entities. And, and that's really to act in an advisory capacity on all questions of cooperation and these are actually in the bylaws, and we'll link to those in the show notes as well. And also to maintain open channels of communication between the executive committee and the trustees of the entities of the convention. So how do you see the efforts that you, you guys have tasked, uh, both the officers and uh, an ad hoc committee, how do you see these efforts to study the current situation fitting in within the role of the executive committee? The thing that happened last week at our executive committee, there were two things that happened. One thing was that our cooperative program committee, which in our executive committee, we have three different committees. We have an administrative committee, uh, we have a business and finance committee, and then we have a budget uh, or we have a cooperative program committee. So our cooperative program committee in their meeting came and they made a decision as a committee to form an ad hoc study committee to look into how the actions of SBC entities may be affecting CP giving among the churches. So they came and, and made that as a committee action. That was, that was a, a cooperative program committee action. And they reported that to the larger executive committee in our plenary session. And then we had, secondly, a request from one of our uh, executive committee members that the uh, executive committee officers just monitor and look into the, uh, the, the way that the actions of entities may affect our churches and CP giving. So we had both of those things that happen. Now, I think one of the things that, that sometimes is, is news to people is, is to understand that the executive committee does not have oversight of any of the Southern, Southern Baptist Convention entities. You know, we, we're not able to tell any seminary or mission board or any, you know, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Committee, we don't tell them or their, their leadership what to do. 
and that's not what our what our responsibility is. Our responsibility is to uh, to set the cooperative program allocation budget uh, that determines what percentage of CP funds each uh, entity receives, and also, as you've noted from Bylaw 18, uh, to be able to to serve as an advisory capacity on serve in an advisory capacity uh, to help entities understand about cooperation and how that's affecting our churches. So the, the actions that were taken really speak to that advisory capacity that the, that the executive committee has to be able to help communicate to our entities and help them to understand what, what we understand is going on with our churches and then also to help our churches to understand what's happening with our entities. Excellent. That's, that's very, very helpful. Now, help us to understand one thing. So even though it may not be as public as this discussion has been, this mm-hmm. does happen with throughout the history of the Southern Baptist Convention. Ever since we've had a cooperative program, churches will change their allocations. They'll change their giving levels. They'll also leave the SBC, and we have new ones join all the time. So what about this particular event uh, leads us to maybe need to look into it more or have a, a, an ad hoc committee? Okay, and that's a great question. I think the first thing I would say is that the actions that were taken by the executive committee are not due solely to the action of Prestonwood Baptist Church to escrow its CP monies. Certainly that, that gets a lot of attention because it's a leading church. Um, it's, uh, it's pastor, Dr. Jack Graham, has served as president of our Southern Baptist Convention. And, uh, you know, the amount of money that you're talking about, I, I believe, you know, it's a, a million dollars of CP giving that's being escrowed. And so that amount and, and that church and the prominence of, of the pastor in the SBC leadership and the church as an SBC church, that gets a lot of attention. And, and I think, you know, we're very thankful for Prestonwood Church and the c- contribution that it's made in every regard uh, to SBC life uh, over the years and, and you know, and we know the, the the contributions they'll make in the days to come uh, to, our, to our SBC. So that gets a lot of attention. But the truth is, there are uh, a lot of other churches who have concerns about some of the things that are happening uh, in uh, certain SBC entities, and uh, specifically some of the actions of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission have caused a lot of churches to uh, to respond and, and to register concerns. In fact, our, our um, executive committee staff tells me that they've received more um, letters, more calls, more emails, um, people who are going to, are considering, you know, defunding or holding back CP monies or things. They've received more concerns about this issue and more volume of, of correspondence and calls about this than from any other issue, you know, in, in memory. And so it's certainly Prestonwood Church's action uh, caused a lot of attention, but it's, Prestonwood is not by itself. In fact, I think Prestonwood is giving voice to what a lot of other churches that might not have as large a voice, uh, they're giving voice to those same concerns. 
Now, there are two efforts uh, that we mentioned in this. You mentioned the ad hoc committee. You mentioned the other by the officers. You were quoted in Baptist Press as saying that these efforts are complementary and would inform one another. Can you kind of expand on how those two work together? These these two things were not coordinated, right? The request of the EC member uh, asking for the officers to look into this and then the action of the cooperative program committee to form an ad hoc committee to look into this those efforts were not coordinated. Uh, one one quick question, just to just point of clarification: when we say CP or the uh, executive committee officers, that's yourself and who else? Okay, that's myself. That is our vice chairman, and that's Shane Hall. Yes, uh, for Southern in uh, Dell City, Oklahoma. Right. Uh, that's our secretary Becky Eilingworth, and then the chairman of the administrative committee, and that's Kent Choate, and then the Business and Finance Committee, and that's uh, Steve Swafford, and then the Cooperative Program Committee, and that's Roland Slade. Okay. So those are the officers. So when when that request was made of the officers, that's who who the request was made. All right, thanks. Okay, so those two actions, the request and then the action of the, the CP committee, they were not done in coordination with one another. So then we found ourselves with really two groups of folks that are essentially doing the same thing, right? Sort of the same task in front of them. So when I was asked the question, I I gave that answer that they would work and complement each other and inform one another, and certainly that's that's the case. But what we're doing as we've moved forward is uh, we're, we're putting together that ad hoc committee the ad hoc committee will consist of um, several of the officers. I'll be on that ad hoc committee. Um, Roland Slade, the the chairman of our um, cooperative program committee, he'll be on that committee. Others from that committee, that cooperative program committee, will serve on the ad hoc team. And so they'll do some some initial initial meeting and, and looking at this issue, and then that will be reported back to our officers, and then we'll move it on from there to our to the executive committee itself. All right. So so their report would would come to the officers. That's what I'm anticipating. Okay. I'm I'm giving you the best answer I can give, sort of based on where we are. Okay. Uh, you know, we we may change the the committee may want to do. I'm talking about this ad hoc committee yeah. may want to do something differently, and it, it may change. We're still in process on that, but that's. I'm sort of explaining to you what what I anticipate. Okay. Sure. And help me remember too, because I think I read one of them is going to bring a report in June, and one of them it said report back in September. Is that correct? I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That sounds that's right. That's what I thought. What if now, as you said, this is kind of bigger than than just the the one more public thing. If there comes to be some kind of resolution, um, maybe even people sort of Preston Wood were to discontinue what they're doing. I mean, would we still, this is still kind of an active report. Is this considered sort of a process that's just a good thing to to do and complete anyway? Well, I would say if those bridges are built and we're able to move, you know, to resolution beyond the work of, of this committee, then certainly that would answer most of the concerns that have been raised uh, by the committee. Got it. Uh, and so I can't I can't predict what the committee might want to do, but I would say that you know any action outside of the committee in a positive direction is going to answer those concerns of the committee. Got it. All right, and then finally, Dr. Rummage, is there a concern that the the action by Preston when you mentioned the others? 
uh, could lead to maybe a pattern, maybe not in this issue, but say a year from now, uh, maybe two years from now, something else in the in the SBC happens. Is it is there a fear that maybe this could lead to a pattern of churches escrowing CP funds uh, just because they may disagree with the actions of an entity or a leader? Well, I think that is that can always be a concern. You know, all of our churches participate voluntarily in the cooperative program, and so um, there's there's a need for a high level of trust uh, from our churches toward our various entities and toward the cooperative program itself. And, uh, you know, I think we want to do everything we can to foster and increase that trust. And so my hope would be that as we come out of this discussion, that we'll wind up with a higher level of trust, uh, especially among those who have concerns. Well, one, one question I did have, and I don't know if you want to speak to this or not. I mean, is this is this a contained thing or is it you're, you're going to look at every entity, you know, regardless of whatever it may be. I would say that the issue that has surfaced most often and most strongly has been issues related to the ERLC. But I think one of the purposes of this study is to look and see how are we doing overall uh, with all of our entities and how does that affect the way our churches are responding and uh, the way the way that they're looking toward giving in the future. Thank you so much, Dr. Rummage. We really appreciate you joining us. Uh, this just helps uh, helps us understand. I think it will help our listeners understand too. And we are very very grateful uh, for your service to Southern Baptist. Thank you very much. It's great to talk to both of you. All right, Jonathan. So that was a great uh, conversation. Very insightful. You learned a lot. Maybe yeah, could just get some some clarity on some things, the whys, and and so very uh, very appreciative. We're thankful uh, to Dr. Rummage for talking with us. Yes, we are. Thank you again, Dr. Rummage, for that. And that's going to move us into our news this week. Starting off, Amy, with some kind of sad news. I had heard about this during executive committee uh, that Dr. Bill Cruz, who is the president emeritus of Gateway Seminary, uh, was not doing well, and uh, we got the news this week that he had died March first after a brief illness. Right. And this is a name, uh, Bill Cruz, that many many of our listeners may have heard, maybe trying to kind of remember and make the connections. But uh, he was president, obviously, of Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, was the sixth president just before uh, Jeff Orge. But he was at Golden Gate for almost 20 years. He, he became the president in December of 1986. Then he sort of moved into chancellor uh, as his role in 2003, and he retired in 2005. So a tremendous commitment to uh, Southern Baptists and specifically to Golden Gate Seminary. So our prayers go out to his family, uh, definite loss in the Southern Baptist world. Yes, he also had served the Northwest Baptist Convention well uh, from 2007 to 2012, spent five years as the executive director up there, was also the the president of the Northwest Baptist Convention at one time and the California Southern Baptist Convention at an, not at the same time, Amy, you know. Can't, right, can't do right. that. Yeah. I understand. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, a different time. So we're sad to hear about the passing of Bill Cruz. He is survived by his wife, uh, the former Joanne Cunningham, uh, now Joanne Cruz. And our thoughts and prayers go out to the Cruz family uh, in their time of loss. All right, Amy, moving on, we have some good news after that uh, from the cooperative program information. It's the first of the month, and you know what that means. CP. CP. And guess what, Amy? 
We're up. Well, CP is up 4.86% ahead of projections. Uh, still a little bit off of last year's projections, but pretty flat. I mean, 0.86% below contributions last year. So basically re- relatively unchanged from last year. Uh, still right. almost 5% up over the budget giving, which is outstanding considering that we started off the fiscal year kind of slow. Yeah, uh, and and we were watching that with great interest as we talked several times just to see where the pattern would go. But after the first of the year, and for reasons that we maybe don't know completely, it's it's bumped up. Yes, and uh, we have seen a dramatic increase the last three months. December, January, and February have all been strong months for cooperative program giving, and we are happy to report that they are almost 5% up over the budget for the year. So we have seven months left in the budget year. Right now, as things are going, uh, unless things really drastically change, I, I kind of expect this to be right on par from where we've been. Yes, so. that's what I would guess, too. All right. Some more news out of the executive committee and NAM this week. The Young Leader Initiative has been announced by that. And John Aiken, a good friend of the podcast here, is going to lead that for NAM. Uh, he'll be transitioning to uh, at the Alpharetta area. He's uh, been, a, been a pastor here at Fairview Church in the Lebanon area, just right down the road from where I live. And uh, sad to see him leave the Middle Tennessee area, but excited for the opportunity he has at NAM. Yeah, that's great. And he's this is an area of interest for him for a long time, reaching out to young pastors. And so it's a great thing to see that uh, Frank Page, Kevin Ezell have an interest in this as well. So the goal is to really better engage pastors between the ages of 25 and 45. And uh, I don't know if you read the the study that I did a, a few, if some weeks back that talked about, and this was not in the Southern Baptist world, it was in Christianity Today, I think. It was just in the the uh, American landscape in general, that like one in seven pastors are under the age of 40. Yeah, that came out from so, the Barna Group, the, the, pastor, yes, the state of the right. pastor uh, research that they just released. This is something that we're, obviously we want to engage the pastors that are there. I'm sure there's a, a goal to maybe even reach out to, to encourage more people into the pastorate that uh, that we have many people who are called into the ministry but maybe aren't in that role. And so this is a great opportunity for some onboarding and some connection with the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, so uh, excited for John. I'm sure he's got a lot of great ideas to get started. All right, and some other news that came out of the executive committee that we just haven't quite got to, and we got a report this past week from David Roach over at Baptist Press on the ethnic diversity uh, report from the executive committee. Some highlights of this, and Amy, I'm going to let you talk to this because one of them involves the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, but right. approximately half of North American Mission Board church plants are predominantly non-Anglo, which I think is amazing because I think they're planting around 1,200 a year, so you know, give or take you know, 600-ish a year are um, predominantly non-Anglo. Lifeway Christian Resources is the largest commercial publisher of Spanish Bibles in the world. We've been also been named like the, uh, the number one Spanish publisher the last couple of years at the Expo Elite Conference and things like that. And then for more than 20 years, the student body at Gateway Seminary, formerly Golden Gate, has been about 60% non-Anglo. They get a lot of uh, Korean students over there. And also uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary has increased its multicultural student population by more than 47% since 2011. Yeah, that's something we've talked about before in many places at Southeastern the Kingdom Diversity Initiative, which was something that uh, Dr. Aiken put forth, really just a vision for changing the makeup of our uh, our campus and, and increasing. We want to increase students, but as we increase, we want to really reflect the diversity that is in the kingdom. 
so that we can go and impact churches in the same way. So uh, the, a lot of efforts have have gone into this. Walter Strickland heads that up for us and lots of recruiting scholarships and, and then as well as uh, just things to do on campus to really make it a great place for that. So uh, have, we have some great discussions and things. So that that's really exciting. It was exciting to be able to share that. Um, it looks like the, the work group that was pulling this together brought out like 14 pages of data and uh, information from all the entities. So this, this story from David Roach is very thorough. It covers, uh, those were some highlights at the top, but then it, it outlines what our entities are doing. Uh, to pursue ethnic diversity. One thing I recently realized uh, from Lifeway that we, we offer a thousand, more than a thousand resources in 35 different languages. Uh, a couple of those are really focused on evangelism as well. So a lot of, and, and I think one of them is even free. And we even highlighted it in the data point email that we send out uh, uh, each week, uh, a couple weeks ago. So um, there's a lot of information in this report. Check it out. You can download the entire report over at the Executive Committee website as well. All right. Uh, speaking of diversity, there's a great story this past week from Tennessee about an association here in the state, the Robertson County Baptist Association. Hey, that's which, my home county. Wait, I thought it was Cheatham County. Robertson County. Okay, I'm we're going to do that again. I'm about, I'm, it's the running gag. Yes. So yes, Amy's from Robertson County, not Cheatham County, even though she just could, like, over the line spit a just watermelon seed over the line from right. her house, basically. Right. Um, but there's a big difference, right? Correct. There's a great story in here about the Robertson County Baptist Association and how they're expecting the Hispanic population to grow by 30 percent over the next five years up in Robertson County. And for those of you not really familiar with Tennessee geography, Robertson County is just kind of north and northwest of Nashville. Right. Uh, between here and the Kentucky line. So uh, that's the area of the state we're talking about. And, and they've got the uh, local association training Hispanic pastors uh, to minister to those moving into the area. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Now, I, I, as I've shared before, I don't have a Southern Baptist background, so I haven't really had a lot of involvement with the Baptist churches there. Um, I know some people at them, uh, but there are uh, there's some great work uh, to be done in Robertson County, and it, this is just exciting for me to see the local association doing that. Yes, it is. All right, moving over to Oklahoma, the disaster relief group over in the state of Oklahoma got a new cardboard recycling unit uh, this past week, so there's a, a cool little picture. That thing's a neat little uh, machine. I'm not quite sure how it works, but it looks cool in that picture. All right, so the, the cardboard recycling unit, I mean, you'd think you know, it's a disaster relief. How does cardboard recycling factor into that? But there's a lot of cardboard that things come in to disaster relief areas. Yeah, so they give an example. Uh, after the flooding in Louisiana last August, they served 20,000 meals a day, and all of them are, are packaged in cardboard packaging. So some volunteers start just kind of looking at at all of this, they see this massive amount and they said, we got to do something because we want to be good stewards. And so they, uh, they drew up some plans and then they raise money for it. And they have this, uh, recycling unit that they can take with them. It's really cool. There's a great, uh, quote in the Baptist press story from the disaster relief director for the BGCO, Sam Porter. And he says that the company that manufactures the machines had never seen a unit like it because what they see is stationary. And uh, the ones that the, the folks in Oklahoma has, uh, ha the one that they have is mobile. And so 
it's this idea that they are are trying to really take care of everything, go and help and serve the people, and then also be good stewards. So this is a great. We've had lots of talk about creation care in the SBC uh, for for the last few years. This is just a, a place where being thoughtful and deliberate uh, plays out. Yeah, and this is something that most stores have in the back. You know, whenever they get stuff in to put out on shelves, they have to do something with that cardboard. They recycle it there in the store, and they're just saying, you know, hey, we're, we're doing the same thing out on the field, so let's bring us a cardboard recycling unit with us. So yes. uh, kind of kind of good outside-the-box thinking there by the Oklahoma Baptist Disaster Relief folks. All right, uh, moving over, B&H launches the Lost Sermons of Spurgeon. Uh, that is now out. It's had a lot of quite a bit of fanfare about this so i'm, I'm excited yes. about it i've got a copy here and you know what i have a copy of the collector's edition which is wow like fancy pants i've got a copy here i've got an extra copy of that and the regular one so the first two people that tweet us about this i will mail to them excellent so can i that's ask why a, people listen to this for free books that's right Burton. for free stuff can i ask a semantics question yes why is it titled the lost sermons of charles Spurgeon? why isn't it titled the found sermons of charles Spurgeon? They're not lost anymore. <laughs> I I don't know. Maybe he was I, preaching you're them. Speechless. Maybe he was I, preaching them to the lost. I've been waiting. There were sermons to I the get lost. It. They're evangelistic. I get it. They were they were lost, and we just found them. So now we publish them, and that makes it really exciting. But I've been waiting until this launched uh, to to throw that one on you. You, you got me. Yeah. So speaking of throwing one on you. Um, there's, I'm not, we're not going to really talk about the story as much as the picture in the story, um, but I sent you a picture today. There's a fantastic story, uh, really just a good story in general, about Frank Page uh, and yes. his uh, commitment to evangelism, and, and which he, he is well known for. But you just need to go to the story. Go read the story. It's a fantastic story, but go for the picture. There's a picture yeah. of Frank Page yes. with a mustache and swoopy hair from, I'm guessing, the 70s, 80s, early 80s. Um, I guess that is it, but fantastic. It's, it's a great sort of present day hipster picture yes. as well. Oh, I he mean, would the totally mustache, fit in in East Nashville. The mustache, the glasses, it's perfect. Um, and it is a great story. It's very worth reading. It's just about his faithful witness over the last uh, 35 years, all the, the things that he has done, specifically focusing on his evangelism efforts. And so it's... um. It's worth it to go and read the story, but the picture is, you're right, it definitely delivers. So yeah, check out that story. Check out the picture. Dr. Page, it's amazing. I, I know you listen to the podcast every week probably, so um, thanks for sharing that, that picture. We wish. Yes. We wish. <laughs> All right. Finally, and this is something that I had missed uh, back uh, when it happened, but Liberty University announced that they're going to go to Division One, the football bowl subclassification. So they're moving up from the championship classification to the bowl classification. We talked a little bit about when we mentioned that Cal Baptist was moving up to Division One, and we right. you know, we talked about some of the other Division One schools that that are you know Baptist in their heritage, Baptist in their history. Liberty, not an SBC school, but uh, a, a sister school nonetheless. But uh, moving up to the the bowl classification. So I just thought it worthy of a mention there. Yeah, definitely very interesting. Of course, that uh, just passed with great victory of the Clemson Tigers uh, winning the whole thing. But sorry, I had to do yeah, that shout that out. In, huh? Yeah, yeah had to do that happy. shout out, yes, for Keith. But um, that's always an exciting time, and it's fun to see Liberty will get to join in uh, on that. Yeah, they can be in one of the 84 bowl games every uh, December and January. So Right, that none of us can keep track of. No. 
or remember which one when matters. They are. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Only uh, yeah. I think only four of them or three of them matter now. I guess the the playoffs. All right. Well, that brings us to my favorite part of the week this week in SBC history. Amy, blow our minds. Yeah. So, I, you know, I always kind of try to find things that some of them are unique things in our churches. Some of them are places that American history uh, or world history intersect uh, with us. And I found sort of a unique note in um, it really it's at the bottom of a Baptist press um of a Baptist Press issue from 1966. Uh, and what happened was in, in 1966, on March 3rd, uh, the president of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, signed into effect. It was uh, what was known as the Cold War GI Bill. Uh, it was the Veterans Readjustment Benefits Act of 1966. Uh, the sort of unique thing about this is it, it provided the you know, permanent program of educational assistance, home and farm loans, hospitalization, medical care, all these things to veterans who served after January 31st, 1955. The unique thing about this is is that this was for, um, it it was for people who had served um, more than six months active duty and that's in wartime or in peacetime. So that's one reason it's called the Cold War GI Bill because their military service so Franklin Roosevelt signed the, the GI Bill in 1944, providing aid to the veterans returning from World War II. But uh, this one in 1966 from Lyndon Johnson was a bit bigger. It wasn't, you know, returning from a specific war. So here's what's interesting, though. Um, the Religious News Service started uh, putting out that it would assist uh, 30,000 servicemen that were already entitled to its benefits to become ministers, priests, and um, and rabbis. So Baptist Press is hitting that many of these could enroll in Baptist theological seminaries. Um, under the World War II GI Bill um, that Roosevelt had signed, they reported 36,000 men received ministerial training. And after the Korean War, 25,000 uh, registered at seminaries. So our seminaries saw massive impact. Now, I would love to sort of drill down and see the effects uh, on our seminaries after these GI bills. So, and I'm not sure what those are, um, but maybe some listener out there could could give us more information. But the GI bill provided education benefits for uh, for all these people living and uh, living expenses, education expenses, everything. And so, I think what is interesting for me to think about when I saw this, this new GI bill that was signed is you can look at the ones uh, after the wars earlier and they're very interesting. In 1966, we probably still have some pastors today who are serving, have given uh, faithful service even now from this uh, act in 1966. So I noticed it and I thought, you know, this is a little nugget of history. It's something that we, we, it doesn't have a famous name attached to it. It's not kind of a cute, you know, piece of trivia, but it's something to say that there are churches out there and many Southern Baptist churches that were directly impacted by this, uh, this action by the president of the United States. And we have faithful pastors that were provided for in this way. So just very interesting. It all happened this week in SBC history. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, let's move us on to our resources of the week. My resource of the week is the book Next by 
William Vanderblumen and Warren Bird talking about pastoral succession, which leads us to Amy's resource of the week, and it is... Yeah, I decided to go with a Tim Keller book. And, uh, you know, there are so many that I think I'm just going to throw the one out that was on prayer, came out last year, um, experiencing awe and intimacy with God. Big announcement this past week about uh, Tim Keller's not retirement, not stepping down, uh, but making a change. Is that transitioning to a new phase of ministry? Yes, transitioning to a new phase of ministry. So he's no longer going to be the sort of senior pastor leading things uh, at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, but he is going to be doing some other things there uh, that is really about training up future leaders. I read somewhere that this was a plan in place. You just uh, had a book about a succession plan, a plan in place for, I think, about two decades for how they would lay the groundwork uh, for the church moving forward. So even though he's not... um, He's not a Southern Baptist, but he is someone that has uh, made a great impact just on evangelicalism in general, and certainly watching uh, the the work that's been done in in Manhattan by Redeemer uh, has been something I think we've all watched with a lot of great respect. And I just really respected the way this uh, this whole thing rolled out, and the 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 clear dedication to raising up the next generation uh, for their church and for the kingdom. Yep, and that's where my book comes in next. So uh, check that out. It's probably the foremost book on pastoral succession out there right now. So um, that's going to do it for us this week, Amy. uh, Big week next week. I'll be in North Carolina, and I think you're coming over uh, as well to the the Leading Change Conference in Winston-Salem. Looking forward to seeing Old Town Salem again. Yes, uh, you, you'll you get a big treat with that. We're probably just going to be sliding over for the day, but Keith and I are going to get to kind of help out with that uh, as well. So it'll be great to see you and the folks at Lifeway and the North Carolina Baptists. Yep, so looking forward to our time in North Carolina next week. And uh, for all of you, don't forget, I've got two copies of the Lost Sermons of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, I guess they're now I'm going to have to call them the Found Sermons of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, two first two people to tweet us about uh, today's episode will get that and uh, we appreciate you joining us this week and we'll see you next week see you next week